0: In this episode, I got to talk with Africa Afaini Mills. She is the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion with Better Lesson and an educational consultant. I have had the pleasure of working with her at Better Lesson as one of their coaches. She is amazing. She works with colleagues, teachers, coaches, and administrators to develop and sustain student centered learning experiences that are diverse, inclusive, and equitable. Africa has been featured on podcasts, blogs, facilitated sessions at conferences across the U.S. She believes that all educators can be motivated, engaged, dynamic practitioners, and leaders when provided with the support needed to create student-centered, anti-bias, anti-racist, culturally responsive learning environments that inspire wonder and creativity, nurture diversity, belonging, equity, and inclusion. I'm so excited for you to hear our conversation today, which talks about a variety of things, including Rudine Sims Bishop's Windows and Mirrors strategy, as well as what she's been calling performative partnership. Hi, I'm Lindsay Lyons, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. Africa, welcome to the Time for Teachership podcast. I am so excited to have you on today. And I'd love if you could just start us off by introducing yourself for our audience in whatever way feels relevant to you.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful to be able to share this space with you. And I love your question. I've actually been listening to a podcast recently called Reclaiming My Theology. And the way that that host asks the questions when guests come on is tell us what it means to be you. And I'm like, I like that right I like that because so often we really just launch into like you know you know what our professional statistics about ourselves so how I would um, how I would introduce myself is that I'm a Christ follower who is exploring what it means to practice my faith without advantaged or privileged culture characteristics which has been really really very important for me um, very very important part of my journey with regard to my faith. I consider myself an equity guardian. I am absolutely an introvert. People do not usually believe that about me because I present differently. But for folks who are into Myers-Briggs, I am an ISFJ, legit, like all the ways that that's described is really true of me. I am a writer. I am a wife to my best friend. My husband and I have been married for 23 years and you would think that we just met yesterday. I am the mother of young adults, which like my son is about to be 18 in like a week. And our our daughter just turned 19. And so I'm like, whoa, this is like, we would be empty nesters, kind of, but the pandemic, so. Like not quite, <laughs> but we're getting there. We're getting there. And then of also also to the mom to my fur baby rabbit, she is our beautiful. I think she's about eight years old. We rescued her, um, and she is a pit bull boxer, and she's fantastic. So she's my fur baby. And then I'm also someone who loves stories. I love singing and laughing. And professionally, I'm the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion for a Better Lesson.
0: I absolutely love that introduction. And I learned so much about you and you just sharing it in that way. I actually have a question to follow up on one piece. You use the phrase equity guardian. Could you say more about that? I think this is my first time hearing that phrase.
1: Yeah. So I think I got the the concept of initially I was thinking about, there's been a lot of talk about being an equity warrior. And so that's how I used to describe myself. I'm like, yes, I am going to war against systemic injustice and oppression and like No, it doesn't feel like it fits. I read a book a while ago by a man named Jim Wallace, who talks a bit about like, you know, with with regard to like race and Christianity. And he talked about the difference between being a a warrior and a guardian. And that definition, I feel like there's an important distinction between the two because going to battle against something, I'm not saying that there's not a place for that. And that people who describe themselves that way, that that's in any way wrong. Like I think it's true for whoever it's true for. But for me, I'm just like, if I'm saying that I want to, to help to create and sustain equitable learning experiences or environments or any type of of community, then I want to be the one who's helping to guard that thing. Um, There's another, there's a friend that I had a chance to meet a couple of years ago named James Ford. He's an amazing educator. And he talked about the importance of not focusing so much on what we want to tear down that we don't spend enough time thinking about what we want to build. And so that's where that shift for me came from, from from equity warriors to equity guardian.
0: Thank you so much for explaining that. No problem. And so the thing I want to start with here in terms of our our questions for today is this idea of thinking big, I think is really, really important to me and really important to folks who listen to the podcast. And I love uh, Dr. Bettina Love's idea of freedom dreaming that she describes as dreams grounded in the critique of injustice. So I'm curious to know what is your big dream that you hold for the field of education?
1: Yes, that's a, such an important question. And I think i like, I have so much love and respect for Bettina Love and her work. So I'm so glad to be able, it's a privilege to be able to, to really like engage with that question. So for me, I feel like one of the things in, in like, I'm very big, you'll hear the more about this a little bit as more as we talk but I'm like very big into Brene Brown. And so I'm like, so not in a way of like shame and guilt, because I think in some ways, depending on how like people are thinking about that, it can be immobilizing. So not in that way, but I feel like with it's only within the past couple of years that I started to really think about what took place after the Brown versus Board of Education decision, right? So I, as, you know, learning about the trauma that existed around that, around integrating black and brown bodies into white spaces and, you know, um, communities that decided that they would rather close schools completely for every child than have any type of integration or how violently some, you know, some students were integrated or even thinking about Ruby Bridges as a six year old child, what she faced going into the classroom and being her teacher's only student for so long. Like I, I spent some time thinking about all of those things but what i haven't thought about and i think i didn't start thinking about it honestly until i i listened to a presentation by chris emden who was talking about like the power of like the black community and black teachers and he was the first one who like i'm not saying he's the first one to introduce the concept but in this session was when i first started to think about what happened to the black teachers who were teaching black children after integration and i was like oh I never thought about that. And I felt, like I said, I'm not trying to be filled with shame, but like I'm like, why didn't I think about that, right? But in really trying to think about that, I'm like, not only did Black kids go through the trauma Of being, you know, forcefully integrated, if it even went that way, right? Depending on if they're actually able to go to school into white spaces, I think about how that manifested even in Boston, right? You know, in in the 70s, right? Like there's a lot of violence around that, and I'm like, yeah. And then trying to make the connection between like so many of us think about like we need to increase the pipeline of teachers of color, and how can we have so few black men in the classroom, and how can we have some like so few black teachers? And I'm like, yeah, because what we did was we disconnected that authentic learning, that teaching and learning community that existed in the black community, pre-integration, like we've never been able to recapture that. And I think that we can with intention because there's a lot that, that was so ingrained into like just really investing in kids and community. So for me, when I think about big dreams for me, I'm like, it's really getting to a point where we actually have a partnership between the schools and the students In the families and the communities. It's not about like coming into a community and rescuing children or, you know, like trying to save children from their families and community. It's about like going alongside children in their families and communities and being like, we're going to engage in curiosity and wonder and thinking and creativity and we're going to do that together. I would love to see learning go into that space. I think for like, for example, for me, when my kids were much younger, my husband and I put them into, they, they were enrolled in Montessori school. And I loved I'm not saying that every school should be Montessori. (laughs) I'm not saying that. But what I did appreciate about it was that there was so there was so much of a concept of like following the child. And they just loved school. Like it was just so, you know, filled with exploration and just like, what is it that the child is naturally curious about and following that and let them be the, 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 lean, be the ones who are leading the learning. And unfortunately, we weren't able to keep them because in Montessori school, because financial aid shifted and <laughs> we didn't have money like that to keep them in without, without assistance. But yeah, I think that it's possible to engage in learning that actually is filled with wonder and, and joy. So that's what my hopes are.
0: That's such a powerful hope and and dream. And and what it makes me think about are all the mindset shifts that are required to get to that place, because that is describing a place that doesn't exist for most schools and many communities that are really traditionally focused on how we've always done education. So I'm curious to know, what do you think are some of those mindset shifts that people have to kind of get through and buy into and, and really adopt to fight for that dream?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it is and has a foundation in some of the things that we talked about just just a second ago because if we like so many educators if if we and I I, I honestly I want to say this I think it's important to say cuz I think there's so much teacher bashing that can happen so I just want to be clear that I'm not trying to be like educated educators, like there's just so many flaws, I'm not saying that. What I do believe sincerely, like in my soul, I feel this, is that like in any group, there's gonna be like a percentage of folks who you'll be like, I'm not really sure why you became a teacher. It doesn't seem like you really like kids. So like, but I really believe that that's sincerely the minority of folks in that group. I believe that most of us entered into the field of education Really, very beautiful reasons, right? Whether it be because we enjoyed school or we love kids or we really believe in the power of education and, and opportunity. Like, there's so many reasons why so many of us became educators that are so pure and beautiful. Unfortunately, though, like when we become teachers, a lot of what's not what has not happened for us is that we haven't had most of them, like, unless we had some type of extraordinary learning experience, most of us did not have the opportunity to engage, like. Anti-bias, anti-racist, culturally responsive, and sustaining diverse, equitable, and inclu- in, inclusive types of learning experiences, and so, and we do also don't get it in our teacher prep programs for the most part, and so then we come in with these really beautiful motivations around why we want to be a teacher, but if we don't have the supports in place. To be able to really create these and you know these experiences that what that were what brought us to education in the first place, then it's gonna be really hard to, to put those things into practice. And so for me, I'll speak from my own experience. Like when I became a teacher, I'm like, I thought like I originally was in graduate school to become like a creative writer. I was working on a novel, and then I realized that I really wanted to teach. And I'm like, I went to graduate school to become a teacher. I did really well in my ed prep program, but when it came time for me to have my own classroom, I was like, oh. There's a lot lot of stuff that I don't know. Like it's not just like knowledge transfer, like you have to be able to build and sustain community and all of these things. So I think that the biggest mindset shift is really for us to be able to recognize that we're not becoming teachers to like save children from their families or communities. We're really trying to join alongside them as partners in a learning experience and building learning community. And we also have to hold the fact that we didn't receive what we needed. And so we have to do some co-learning with students. We have to learn the things we didn't learn. And then we have to be able to provide those things for our students as well.
0: I love that you called that co-learning because I'm, also, I'm usually thinking we have to unlearn. We have to undo all the things. But it's really a co-learning because a lot of times, I mean, one, we're learning from our students in the same ways that they're learning from us. And that's important to name. But also this idea of, you know, students, depending on how old they are, I know I taught high school they have been told, this is what education is for so long. This is how teachers respond to me. Like we're unlearning or co-learning that together. Right. And we have to create that new reality that is, is really different from what we maybe thought or saw on television, for example, what right. education looks like.
1: Right, so true.
0: And so I'm curious about how we get there. So what are kind of the steps that we can take to make make that dream happen, to get teachers um, thinking about how we uh, do all of that work that we've been talking about so far? What would you say is kind of the, the thing that you talk to teachers most about in, in this regard?
1: Yeah, I think aside from like just really exploring that love like adopting that level of awareness about what it is that we did not receive I think that's a really big shift that we have to initially we have to take those steps to realize that that's what happened to us. Um, And then also giving grace to the people who taught us as well, because it happened to them too, right? It's just been generationally, we have not been leaning into this type of work. But I think once we get to the level of awareness and and can do that in a healthy way without, you know, like I was talking about before, like not feeling shame. Because like, honestly, I think back to some of the things I did with the students that I taught, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like (laughs) I really wish I could go back and undo, like like unlearning, undoing some of the things that I did. And not had good intentions, but good intentions don't always lead to great outcomes, right? So just really being able to recognize Going beyond that awareness to really saying like, okay, well, what does it take? Not only do I have to go through my own learning, but if I am honest about the fact that I really have not, you know, aside from like some sometimes schools will, will talk about like family and community partnership, but a lot of times it looks more like, okay, like before, like pre-COVID was more like, oh, make sure that parents come and they're chaperoning class trips so that they're contributing to the bake sale or selling gift wrapping paper, or, you know. <laughs> cookie dough like whatever it is that we're using like raise funds or we want them to come to conference night and literacy night and math night and to pick up the report cards and hear about all the things their students are not really doing so well necessarily like that's not partnership and so I think those steps are like really trying to um operationalize our learning so it's like okay well if learning if what we've been trying to do all along has not been effective and it, and it hasn't been largely right when we talk about the goals that we have and how we try to get there there's been a lot of misalignment so if we realize that it's like well what do we need to do, what structures do we need to put into place to make sure we have the opportunity to continue that learning and to change our practices, right? So if that looks like, it could look like something so basic, and I know some people might might feel like this is not enough. Honestly, I feel like this is a massive first step. I think back to when I was a new teacher. And when I say new teacher, I don't even mean just my first year, I mean like the first several years. Cause whenever you come into a space, you always like we're human beings, we wanna belong. We don't wanna be the one who's like the rogue person doing something different. Like we wanna be part of the community. And so I'd be in the teacher's room or making copies and I would hear veteran teachers saying, so, and not everybody so I just definitely want like I'm I totally am genuinely not trying to teach a bash but there are some folks who are who have gotten kind of jaded around the way they think about teaching and learning and in, in kids and their families and so there'd be a lot of times where people would say things to me about kids in their families and in my heart I'd be like that's not right that's like mean or like if that was if they were talking about me or my family I would feel a certain type of way, or even feeling like genuinely like if they knew me well enough, they would know that they actually were talking about me and my family because my family, like I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, with a, I'm like my family was beautiful. I just, you know, and they still are, and I think that, but that's not something that was always celebrated. In my school community, like there was a lot more focus on like the deficits and the challenges. And so I'm like a lot of times people will say things and I'm like, you don't even really know that you're talking about like my cousin or my uncle, right? Like or like a sibling or something like that. So I think just even having the courage to speak up in the face of people saying um things that are not necessarily like that are like deficit-based just really having the courage to try to shift the narrative i think even something like that can be really powerful because it it lets people know who you are and what you stand for and then you will also find your allies right or your co-conspirators or your you know your comrades or your accomplices and you'll start to really be able to work together to to really get that work done but i think we have to have courage to speak up against messed up things
0: i can relate to so much of that just hearing it and then for me remaining silent and then feeling like, why was, it? why didn't I say something where, yeah. where was that? And I think it's so powerful what you're speaking to that idea of belonging, like wanting to fit in, especially as a new teacher and, you know, being taught the ropes, so to speak. Right. And and just having to, to follow that versus this is what I truly believe. And this is what I need to say. This is what I want the school to become. And I believe it can become that and trying to find that community of people who will kind of be with you. And that is is critical and also difficult, especially as a new teacher.
1: It really is. So I think about that too like this, like I talked about hearing from Chris Emden before and he tells a story like that too. And when he became a teacher, that people would come to him and tell him, like, don't smile at your students until December. And he'd be like, that seems messed up, <laughs> right? But you're a veteran teacher. So like, well, you know, I'm new. Maybe there's something, you know, that I don't know. But then as he learns, like, no, that it is messed up. <laughs> Like, that's just unkind. Like, how are you going to connect with somebody if you just wouldn't even show them something as basically decent as a smile? So you're so right, so right.
0: That's such a great example of another one <laughs> that we've yeah. all heard, I think. Yeah. So I know that you talk a lot about the importance of students having both windows and mirrors in the curriculum. So referencing Rudine Sims, Bishops, Windows, Mirrors, and Sliding Doors. So I'd love if you can just share a little bit more about this framework, you know, what, you think the value is that it brings to the table and how educators specifically can can use it in their lens of designing curriculum and and teaching classrooms
1: yeah i think probably like we were talking about a little bit earlier was i think we need to first recognize what are our own windows and mirrors so just like going into the concept a bit more is like the windows are what we gaze through to discover other perspectives and other experiences and other, you know, other ways of being and other histories right so that's where we're looking through the window. To see something other than ourselves or what you know other than what we've experienced and then the mirror. Being what reflects who we are and different parts of our identities back to ourselves right, and so we need to make sure that students have the opportunities to experience both in our in our in our learning communities but before we can do that it's just like well no one really ever asked me what my windows and mirrors were so it's like I need to really spend some time thinking about that like what are things that I feel like represent me and all the different things that make me Africa right and what are some things that I really would like to have learned that I never had a chance to learn right so just really being like thinking about that and then thinking about what that like not only thinking about what that means for our students but also asking them because I think that's a big part of what we're missing in education we don't ask kids anywhere near enough questions and I don't mean assessments. Like I'm totally not talking about like state assessments or even like what I feel like are the more like helpful and informative, like formative assessments. Those are really important, but I don't even mean that. I mean like how are you experiencing this learning community? And how, what do you think about what we have on deck to learn this year? And is what do you think might be missing? Or how would you wanna learn this, right? If this is something that you feel like you would wanna learn. So I think really hearing from students because some of the mistakes we can make, I know I've made it, where I get a new concept or a framework, I'm just like, yes, students need windows and mirrors. Let me determine them for the students. I'm like, no, that's, that's not the right way to go. We need to hear from them, right? Because otherwise we're imposing our own view of who the students are on them and it's still not authentic. And so I think that's the piece too. But I think one of the, it's not enough to just be like, yeah, because because we can think about it when it comes to black and brown kids or students who are from marginalized. Um, marginalized backgrounds where we can say okay yeah like we want to make sure that we provide those opportunities for them but it's like yeah we need to think about it a bit more deeply that black and brown kids and kids from marginalized groups are oftentimes looking through way too many windows right it's like you're learning about all types of people i think about this too like even because i grew up in a family that was like working class and my family now, I'm like, I don't even know what we are because of student loan debt. (laughs) like, we still have, we have a house, but we got it during the subprime mortgage crisis. So I don't even know what I am economically. But when I I think about it too, like even when like I binge watch shows and I I watch like, you know, people in different houses and stuff, I'm just like, I want to live in a house that big, (laughs) right? Like I want to go on vacation, like when we have the opportunity to go on vacation again. And so that kind of stuff too, like just really being mindful of like how those things show up for me but so just just knowing too, like just hearing from students like what are some of the things that you would like to learn more about um and then i think when it comes to and, and making sure black and brown kids get to see way more representation of themselves and not just from the perspective of like oh yes like your people went through such hardship and enslavement and, and civil rights and rosa parks and martin luther king and harriet Tubman. it's just like True, those are parts of the story and very important parts of the story, but those are not the only parts of the story. So, right, so if we're talking about black and brown kids, it can't only be about oppressive things and suffering. It needs to be about like, what does it fully mean to be you? Which is why your opening question is it resonates still with me. Is like, what does it mean to be you? But then also thinking about like our white students too, it's just like, yes, you know, I don't know. You probably have seen that graphic that talks about the lack of diversity in children's books like between 2012, right? And 2015 and 2018, how it went from like, like I think white kids were like 93% of children's books at, in 2012 were about like featuring white kids. And then even when we got like the, da- the data shifted it more so It didn't go to black and brown kids and went more to like animals and trucks, right? Like less about white kids, but not quite about other kids too. But just really giving white students an opportunity to like, to really see like they need more opportunities to look through windows and hear more and learn more about other perspectives and histories and, you know, and and interests and all those things. But not only that, it's also to to hear like to learn more about themselves like what does it mean to be white and I think about that too, because we talk a lot about what being culturally responsive that. You know that black and brown kids like they really need to be able to enjoy being proud of themselves and where they come from And it's like yeah but. Then, when, when we need to explore more what does it mean for white kids because they're like can I say that I love being white no that would not go well (laughs) i said i like being white but then what does that mean we're talking about diversity am i not part of that right and so it's just like really being able to show white students like yes not not trying to like you know to water it down like when we look at colonization when we look at some of the things that have happened it's not good right some of those things are really and we still are seeing the effects of, of systemic oppression And at the same time, there are white people historically who have fought against, right? Who have worked alongside folks and who have been abolitionists and who have been really fighting for, you know, like to really the humanization of all of us, right? Because we think about how racialization has harmed us all. So I think like the concept of windows and mirrors provides us with such a powerful frame.
0: I love so much of that because it goes deeper than what is typically shared when we talk about windows and mirrors. So that self-awareness piece right off the bat I'm just thinking in conversations I've facilitated with educators, we don't usually start there. We don't usually start with this introspective, you know, series of questions. And it's interesting because I know in some of the work you're doing, you're asking, you know, white educators who grew up in predominantly white neighborhoods, like what was that experience like? And and when you asked me, it took a while. I remember, I remember I think you had said, uh, maybe 30 minutes to answer these questions. And it took me a few hours because I was like, the (laughs) mental energy to go back and actually think about it when it wasn't being, these questions weren't surfaced in the moment, like when I was in school Mm -hmm. and to be able to retrospectively with what I know now go back and say, huh, what was that experience actually? Like, what were we talking about? What weren't we talking about? What media was I consuming? Was really difficult. And I think that just speaks to the need for what you're saying of, you know, we need that self-reflection first before we dive in and say, again, with that teacher lens, here's exactly what the windows and mirrors will be, I will tell you. (laughs) So that voice of students also being critically important. And I also think about that too, some of the things that you were talking about, like the broadening of the experience, also just Crenshaw's idea of intersectionality too. So Mm -hmm. that idea that, right, like all people of a particular race are not monolithic. (laughs) Like there are these varied experiences. And so sometimes I hear teachers say, oh, well, there was this really great book, you know, that, that centers whatever race they're trying to center, but it's still heteronormative. It's still cisgender. It's still all the things that Now we have a slice of like this, this other window, but there are so many more still reflecting probably mirrors for different folks that have always had mirrors, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. that's an interesting component to that. Like, how do we dive deeper into what windows and mirrors actually mean? And how do we encourage educators to think about it even deeper than just that surface level that I think has been popularized a bit more lately?
1: Yeah, I think so. so. And I think the other piece, this is something I've really been thinking quite a bit about is... And I, don't, I, and I understand why this is a push, but I think we need to really explore the, the way that this can manifest, is that there's been a lot of conversation about like diversifying the teaching staff, diversifying like students need to see stu- people who look like them. I'm like, I totally agree. And, right, so we need to be able to hold, do the both and, we also need to be mindful of how racialization and internalized oppression shows up in people from marginalized groups. And I'll just keep the focus on myself because I'm like, everybody has to tell their own story. But for me, I grew up in a like you know like where where school was like a space for me like I loved school I did so well in school and I just grew up with that perception of myself like I had you know gone into first grade early so I was like a five year old first grader and then I skipped the eighth grade so I was really young graduating from high school so of course everybody was like Africa you, this is before I started like challenging the concept of smart but it was like oh Africa you're so smart you're so smart so in my head I'm like oh that's it. What you have to do is just focus on school, and then everything will be fine. And then so when I went into being a classroom teacher. That's the perspective that I brought in with me. And so I'm just like, yeah. And So now, what does that mean? That means classroom management. That means you are controlled in my room in my space, right? It's, it's, it happened to me pretty quickly. And it was like, when I look back, I'm like, ick. I hate that, that that's how I approach creating like, well, I don't even know if I want to call that like an effective learning space. Thankfully, I was able to really still have really strong relationships with my students, which I'm so they're so gracious like they're so gracious to me and not really, like I still maintain relationship with a lot of my former students. But I think it's really important for us to think about like as black and brown people, if you're in, not if, since we are in school systems that are largely based on like an advantaged or privileged, you know, um, culture characteristics. And if those of us who are people of color or marginalized folks have bought into that, we bought into the system and how to play the game, then that means that we're not quite equitable either, right? Or we're not necessarily seeing things the way we need to either. So I think it's about all of us really being able to make sure we have the right mindset when it comes to how we think about teaching and learning.
0: I love that. And I, I want to go back to, to a point you made about the importance of asking the students um, about the windows and mirrors. How do you strike that balance between asking students for, you know, what are your book recommendations, recommendations? What are the stories that you want to hear? And also like not putting so much of the work on the students to come up with that because Hassan Kwame Jeffries does the Teaching Hard History podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there was that one episode where he was talking about. Um, his child being asked to, like the teacher taught something about a historical figure that was inaccurate. I think it was Rosa Parks. Um, And his child actually spoke up and said after a conversation with dad and was like, hey, this isn't quite right. And the teacher offered the opportunity to teach the class, which to him at first was like, okay, great. But then later he was like, I actually realized that that's the teacher's work that she needs to do. And then bring like the student was able to shout it out. Now the teacher needs to go do the work bring it back present it and invite conversation but I guess my question is how do we achieve that balance of inviting student voice and then also not putting everything on students
1: yeah I think it's an important consideration because so so much of what I'm mindful of about this work is that once you know once your awareness is raised it's kind of like I don't know if you've watched the, um, the movie The Matrix like once you're aware of what's happening you're like wait this is terrible, like we got to fight this, right? And you just, you want to end it immediately. It's like, yeah, but you can't go. You're not going to be able to because something that has taken centuries to set up is going to take some time to, to reimagine, right? And to, and, to, and to dismantle and reshape, right? So I think part of it is that students and their families and community, I think that's why we also have to make sure we're balancing us, not all on the students, but we want to hear from their families too, and from the communities too is is being aware of like what the topics are, right? and And even like you know, I think it's great that the student was able to help the teachers to raise their awareness and be like, actually, this is not accurate what you just said because it takes a lot of you know humility and vulnerability to be able to to get that feedback from students. But I think a lot of it is that, like, not trying to. I think sometimes it comes up where it's like, oh, well, this is a mistake I made, and we're really trying to make sure things are relevant. Let's go ahead and give the opportunity for students to engage. It's like, yeah, but like that parent said, it's like that's not my child is not being paid to teach this class. <laughs> like, that's that's your job. So I think there's part of it where it's like. We're gonna to need to be able to accept that we're not gonna be able to change the whole curriculum all at one time. That's why I think it's so important when we think about doing this work that we're not thinking about doing it alone. I really believe that it has to be the work of like grade level teams and content teams and instructional coach teams and administrative teams and the school site council, which hopefully in the most, I, like in the best circumstance, involves family and community members where we can set up a plan to say, All right, so here's how we would like to shift things over the next three to five years, it is hard because we're not trying to say we want to do messed up things to kids. In in part, (laughs) and then do like better things like we're not trying to say that, but I think also just really holding ourselves to the fact that it's going to take some time. to really to address a lot of the things that have happened that are unjust and that are that are oppressive. And so I think holding that and just being able to determine like here's how we're going to roll this out over time, because I think when we start. know trying to like change things immediately that's when we start doing making some of those moves and it's not really the best move it reminds me too i'm like i don't know if you've ever seen that it was on the internet by uh, i think the boy his name is king or is king and he's a fourth grader and he wrote this paper about columbus and he was just like i'm not you know like you're teaching me the wrong thing about columbus and i'm not this is wrong my parents told me (laughs) that christopher columbus did all these things wrong and and he was in fourth grade i was like all right little man (laughs) I appreciate that, but the teacher's response wasn't great. She actually was like, her response was not supportive, but say she had had, right? Like say she had had a response, where she's like, all right, King, tell us what you know about Christopher Columbus. King could have been like, not my job, right? And so I think it's about like raising our awareness and then it might be, when can we start? to? when can I, as an instructor, when can I work with my team to restructure what we're going to read or how we're going to approach this content and trying to look at at doing it together and not just putting it on the students and their family to do the teaching instead, because that's not a partnership. Passing it off to someone else to do is not a partnership, so I think really thinking about what does partnership look like
0: there's so much there too in terms of what you said with like the vulnerability of the teacher to be able to say, yep, I was wrong. You're right. Thank you. And creating the space to be able to have that student say that without fear of reprisal from the teacher, you know, teacher, you are wrong. (laughs) So there's that dynamic there. And then I love that, that returning to partnership. What is truly a partnership is not, this is on you. It is collaborative, it is sustainable over time, it is that work in teams, it is the commitment to do better. Yes. Like, absolutely, I love that. I feel like that's the theme of the episode is this yes. partnership, authentic yes.
1: partnership. It has to be. It has to be.
0: <laughs> I'm curious too about just you know, the the overwhelm that that something like that could and has, I think a lot of teachers have said this has felt for them. This is a, an overwhelming shift because our our entire education system is steeped in white supremacy, and just mm-hmm. having to unpack that, dismantle that, recreate and build, and all of that stuff is is a lot. Yes. And so, in terms of a starting point, a feeling of like momentum building, um, where do you recommend that teachers who are interested in doing this work actually start? What resources would you suggest they check out to to kind of get the ball rolling?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, in an ideal world, and I know we're not in an ideal world, especially right now, because I definitely want to name that in the midst of a pandemic, like, that, it's, it's completely overwhelming to think about, like, just in general, what teaching and learning, like, what it means to create an effective learning community without there being a worldwide pandemic, and then we add the pandemic on top of that, it's like, my God, like, wow, like where to even begin, you know, I'm like, I'm just trying to make sure that my students are actually being able to, whether in a hybrid way or remote way, like trying to make sure that I'm able to connect with my students, let alone trying to shift the fundamental way that I'm teaching. I think the main, like, so but, so, ideally what would be great is if, the, if teachers had the support of administrators. So I do want to just definitely make a plug for administrators being able to create those spaces. For teachers to be like, yep, I know that things are challenging. I know that things are hard, but what we are going to do is we're going to dedicate a staff meeting per month, or we I would like for the focus of a, a content, you know, team meeting or a grade level meeting to be about like taking a look at a specific unit or a specific lesson that's coming up, and like how what is a shift that you can make to make sure that this content is you know is considerate and inclusive, and like what are so just really being able to have the dedicated time. And space to do that, because I think a lot of times educators, whether it be like adopting a new set of standards or a new writing curriculum or a math curriculum or a social stuff, like all the different shifts that we make or, you know, a new way of assessing students or there's so many shifts that we make. So we know what that feels like to have something that we need to become, you know, acclimated to that's it, it is hard. And at the same time, we are so like we are, we have done these hard things for a long time. And so we're, I, I think my thing is that I would really encourage Folks, to not think of anti-racist education as something that's a hard that that is actually a harder thing than other hard things that we've done. I think it is hard in the sense that we have not been practiced in it. So there is some nature of it that is more difficult, especially emotionally, because we have to navigate through a lot of stuff. So I'm not saying that that part isn't hard, but I think that once we get to that finan- that that foundational awareness in, we can do it just like we've done other hard things. So like, okay not ideal to have to just roll out a whole new set of standards. Right? So, But we can do it, right? So what does it look like to create structures? And then when I think about resources, one of the resources that I love so much is teaching tolerance. Um, and I want to just name this too because I'm like, I know this came up before in a way that surprised me. And I'm like, oh, I, I probably should have seen this coming. But there was actually a time that I was in a conversation with a potential partner And um, she was like, yeah, I don't really want to do this work with you because you use teaching tolerance resources. And I don't want to just be tolerated. I don't think that that's enough. And I was like, oh, unfortunately that message came to me through someone else. So I didn't have a chance to really talk about it with her. And I'm like, actually teaching tolerance is grappling with their name, <laughs> right? Like when, when they were create, when they the first the organization first started, tolerance was progressive, right? But now that we're in this time when we like, I think about the two, I don't want to be tolerated, but what they're facing as an organization is like, if we change our name, do we lose connection with the people who have come to rely on these resources if we call ourselves something different? So I do want to name that the word tolerance can be off-putting, but know that the organization itself is grappling with what does that look like for them for the future. But just having said that, like the fact that they create so many supportive resources, whether it be the social justice standards that you know K through 12, where it really spells out what does it mean to support students around the like, identity, diversity, justice, and action, and there's these modules, like everything's free, right? Like you can just like download all these resources and really take a deep dive into it. So I think even something like that is like saying, okay, this grade level team is going to take a dive into identity. This grade level team might take a dive into diversity. Like we're all gonna like, jug- like jigsaw this and then we're gonna find some ways to like share what it is that we're learning so that we can move this forward. And I really do appreciate when they are like free, high quality resources. Like I know some things are free and they're not great, but this, these are resources that I've learned. Like it's like the articles that come out, all the different like all the different curricular pieces that are there. I think trying to like look into those resources and see like what what can we choose that we're going to use to try to make a shift, and then we work on those things together. We keep doing that. Yeah, we keep doing that work.
0: That is so interesting. I did not know that Teaching Tolerance was grappling with their name because I've had that same thought of interesting choice of name for such a progressive organization that does right. grapple with these things in the content they put out. Yes. So, Super interesting to
1: know yeah, that. Yeah, I should send you the link. They actually have a link to a letter that was written by one of the directors where there's a Google form, like I think it's a Google form you can fill out to give your thoughts about the name and anything that you think that you might recommend. I can include
0: it in the post. In terms of this idea of living out our values of justice and equity as, as educators, so much of this work is kind of that balance of introspection, which you've been talking a lot about, of like looking inside, deepening that awareness, I think is the language you used as awareness, yeah. and also taking action. I think sometimes there is a rush to action without the awareness that is not helpful, but you know, that idea of awareness plus action or awareness then action, right, is really important. Um, Once people end this episode and they go into their educator lives, what is something that you would recommend that they do or can do right away um, in terms of moving from awareness to action?
1: I think one of the main things is and it could be something formal like I know the panorama has these resources around like. You know surveying students and finding out like how they're feeling about like equity in the school and how families are feeling about you know so there's there's those free resources as well, but it doesn't even have to be like that. Formal, I don't think I think they're really just reaching out if if educators are not already doing this because I definitely want to Like definitely want to just say that I know that there are educators who are already doing this sometimes though when folks are newer on their journey about this topic in particular one of the really important steps that can be taken is to find out like okay well what is it that students like how are you experiencing this learning community it's going to be interesting responses i think in the midst obviously in the midst of a pandemic but i think even outside of that like not just about the pandemic but just thinking about like what it is that we're learning what excites you about this well are there some things that you're learning about outside of the classroom that you wish were parts of what we learned about here like i know like you know i talked about my own children but they would always come home and tell me all kinds of stuff and of course they were like we don't want you emailing the teachers mommy and let's like I'll, I can, I'll do it sometimes and sometimes i won't right sometimes i can't help myself but i think they would come home and they have so many opinions about how the learning community could be better or who could could be different or things could be re-emphasized or de-emphasized right so i think that really a really good first step is just asking the question and because i feel like there's a couple of things that are accomplished there not only do you get the information that you might not have otherwise um, or sometimes that we get, I know, Zala, I don't know if you went through this too, but like when I first became a teacher, I'm just like, yeah, you give the students a getting to know you survey at the beginning of the school year, but then I never did anything with it. I just like collected them, <laughs> like put them in a drawer. I'm like, what, why did I even write if I'm not going to use it. But I think so there's the, the benefit of actually learning authentic things from students and potentially their families. If you go into the, if the teachers go or educators go into the family, like, if sorry, their families as well. But not only do do we get the information, but we also send the message that I care what you think, and I care how you're feeling, and I care how you feel in this space, and do you feel like this is, like you're part of what we're doing, or do you feel like you're just the recipient, right? Like you just want, you want me to come and sit, in the Zoom room or in the classroom, like all those different kinds of things, you just want me to sit and quietly listen to you, or you want me to collaborate with my classmates when you tell me to collaborate, or even like some of the things that I saw was like heartbreaking. You may have seen some of these things too when we started going into a remote approach to, to teaching and learning, where there were like these big lists of like, you may not wear pajamas, you may not eat food, you must have your camera on, you must have a blank wall in back of you. I'm like, how? how, how, like, how is a child supposed to feel? So, just like, just really taking the step to ask students how they're feeling and what, what not only how they're feeling, but what is it that you want to learn that's missing? And just actually like listening to them and trying to see where, like, you're not going to be able to in- incorporate everything, but you can incorporate some, right? So, I think that's a really great, like, easy next step, right? It's not going to take too much. It just really takes will, it takes will and time to ask those questions.
0: One of the things that sticks out to me is I was just reading about um adaptive leadership and and turbulence theory, which I am from the student voice field of scholarship. And so Dana Mitra has this pyramid of student voice. And she's like, at the bottom, we have this most frequent thing, which is serving the students at the in between, we have this idea of like, partnership between youth and adults. And at the top, we have building capacity for student leadership. And I always loved that pyramid. But then after years later, I think she partnered with another scholar to map onto it, this idea of turbulence theory, which I was not familiar with. And basically, what they came up with is when you just survey your students when you leave it like as the first you know beginning day here's the survey to get to know my students and then I don't do anything with it and I don't build capacity and I don't partner with students it actually increases the turbulence or discomfort because you're enabling students to have this place where they think they have voice And then they share their ideas and it goes nowhere. And then you just have kind of chaos ensue because you've given them the platform and then not built any capacity for yourself or them to do anything with it versus when you partner or you build capacity for students to take on a regular leadership role, like on an ongoing basis, here's what I want to learn. This is how I want to choose to learn today. Mm -hmm. You actually decrease the turbulence because there's this idea of, you know, I'm constantly knowing ways that I can lead in the class. And I know that there's action taken as a result of what I'm saying. So I just connected with what you were saying so much because that's I think that's exactly what's often happening in classes when it's like oh I gave him voice but it's like what type of voice and in what way I right,
1: think so. like you didn't really mean it like you just it just was you know what it reminds me of like I know we've heard this term quite a bit especially since you know the murders of like Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd is you know people just like yeah I'll put up a black square on Instagram or on my social media or I will I will you know put out a Black Lives Matter statement and we started hearing a lot more about like performative allyship right it's almost like that's like performative partnership which is like I gave you the survey it's like yeah but you didn't really like I told you I poured my heart out about how much I love learning about dinosaurs and you never mentioned it to me again (laughs) and we never learned like what was the point of asking right yeah Mm. oh
0: my gosh I'm so sad for that hypothetical child who loves dinosaurs now (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I know that you have been working on you're always working on things you've been working on so many things um one of the things I know you've been talking about a bit more is about And you mentioned that in in the podcast today, but this idea of teaching white students. And I just wanted to pause and give you a moment to say anything else that we didn't get to talk about today in this work and this stuff you've been thinking about um, in regard to that specific domain of teaching.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, I feel like there's so much like possibility and promise there because- like we were talking about before too, it's really important for a teacher to go through this foundational learning as well. And it's just like, yeah, like when we talk about racialization or we think about systemic oppression and how that shows up in in learning spaces, it's just like, yeah, you, and I'm I'm not saying William Lloyd Garrison didn't have his challenges because there was a lot of paternalism going on with him. I get that, but I'm just like, when we think about like the abolitionist movement or we think about like, like Sarah and Angelina Grimke or we think about like all the different folks like Jane Elliott, there are so many white folks who are just like, yeah, no, this is not okay right? And at great risk to themselves as far as like their societal standing or their connection to their families or any of those things, like in the face, like we're willing to sacrifice that because they believed in something more important, right? That it was more important that they, that they really fight to make sure that we are not supporting oppression, right? In the different ways that that manifested, right? There are different people who were able to do it to different levels depending on the times we were in. People are going to do it a bit differently now than they would have done it in the 1850s, right? And so thank God, right? Like we Progress and things like that. But I think that's the piece too, is like showing white students that it's possible to really challenge this narrative that they're often given, right? That you know, so basically, and it's not even necessarily—it's not like te- well I'm not in some places it's intentional, but I think a lot of times too, like if you're a teacher, you're just picking a whole bunch of children's books, and the children's books happen to have all white kids in it. I don't think a lot of teachers are sitting down and being like, "I only want children's books with white kids in it." But the the impact is that it shows white kids that, like, okay, like basically, I'm the one that is to be centered, and everyone else is not quite normal, right? And then we can try to do things to kind of, you know, like try to make folks feel included somewhat, but that's the thing that we do in February, right? Like during Black History Month. Or we talk about that on, you know, in January on Martin Luther King's birthday, or maybe, you know, around now when we're thinking about like, oh yeah, it's Indigenous Peoples Day instead of Columbus Day. Like we, or right now it's like, okay, what do we really think about Thanksgiving? Is, you know, like all that type of stuff. Like we don't want it to be incidental with white students being able to have a different understanding or an accurate understanding of their place in the world. right? And so it's not, and I think that's the piece too. I think some people get afraid when we think about like anti-racist education, even just like seeing like the executive order that came out around like, it's not okay, like, it's not even permissible for federal, you know, organizations to even have this PD. And it's just like, no, we're not trying to tell white kids, like, you're horrible, or like, you're bad. It like, we just want you to be able to see the world as it truly is and should be. And so I think that's the thing that I would say that is so much promise in being able to, you know, to have kids have the opportunity to really see themselves and others in the most beautiful way that they should. That's what I really feel like. That's why I feel excited about that work. James Tyson Bray
0: Newsom is like a great yes. example, oh, right? Of like yes. modern day, like what does yes. it look like to decenter yourself and still work for racial justice? Like Absolutely. and Absolutely. I think, you know, the teachers, especially white teachers teaching white students, like mm-hmm. that's that's you, right? You are the person who can be and like a, a person that they know who lives into this idea of whiteness, not as an oppressor, but as I, a co-conspirator.
1: Yes, so, yes. I'm very excited about it. Like, you mentioned James Tyson and Brie Newsom. Like, those are my people. I'm like, this, that story. (laughs) Like, even because I didn't realize the extent of the story until I read Bettina Love's book. And once I read the account, I was like, what? Oh, yes, yes, this is it. Like, these are the stories that we need to be telling. Right. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And I know there are so many different things that you have mentioned today in terms of resources. What other resources or or podcasts or things that you've been listening to or learning through would you recommend for listeners?
1: Yeah. So for me, what I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, there's a, a couple of things with regards, like I mentioned in the beginning about me exploring, like, what is Christianity absent white supremacy culture characteristics, that's a big part of what I'm doing and what I'm listening to and reading. So there's a podcast called Reclaiming My Theology for other folks who might be curious about what that looks like as well. But when it comes to like thinking about myself as like an education leader, I've been really enjoying, like I enjoyed reading Brene Brown's Dear Lead when it first came out, but then also listening to the podcast because I feel like being able like, you know, like you read something, it's like, yeah, that was great but then you could forget a lot, right? If you're not applying it actively. So really been like listening to that podcast but then her Unlocking Us, podcast as well, like it's just been really so phenomenal. Even the one that that I listened to most recently was when she interviewed Priya Parker who wrote The Art of Gathering and was talking about like, what does it mean to gather? What does it mean to engender belonging? And so those are a couple of things that I've been like reading and listening to lately. And one of the things that I downloaded that I haven't read yet, but that I'm excited about is Priya Parker, like thinking about what it means to gather particularly during a pandemic where a lot of our gathering is taking place remotely. Like what is, how is remote gathering different than in, different and the same in a lot of ways than in-person gathering or as in-person gathering. So those, those are some of the things I've been thinking about most recently. And so like some of it goes beyond, you know, the education in particular, but it's for me, it's like it's at the foundation of who I am as a person. And then I bring that into the work that I do with educators. So I think all of that connects for me.
0: Awesome. So there's there's so much that we've talked about and I imagine that listeners are gonna to wanna to continue to, to touch base with you. Um, so just to kind of quickly recap, we've talked about the ideas of partnership. We've talked about that self-awareness as being really critical before we take that action, right? Awareness then action. We've talked about the, the importance of teamwork and administrators creating the space for the work. Um, we've talked about kind of that depth of windows and mirrors. We've talked about the importance of white students and in, in redefining whiteness in a way that is anti-oppressive. Um, and I, I love that you referenced, like, I think I wrote down, we can do hard things, right? Like this is hard work, but we can do hard things. So I think so many listeners are going to want to continue these amazing conversations with you and continue to follow your work, which I know you're always sharing on social media. So I'm curious, where can listeners learn more about you or connect with you online?
1: Oh, absolutely. So for folks who are on Twitter, my Twitter handle is Afani Mills. So it's A-F as in Frank, E-N as in Norman, I, and my last name Mills, all one word. Um, you can definitely reach out and connect with me on LinkedIn. you can just look up, if you look up my name, you'll be able to find me there. I've also created for folks who are on Facebook. I have the Africa Afaney Mills Equity Guardian, Facebook page that if you're on and and look that up, you should be able to find me. And I do try to keep like, I'm like, I don't have my own website yet, but that's where I do like put a lot of my work so that people can find it. Well, those are the main places I would say that people can connect with me.
0: Thank you so much. I just appreciate all that you have shared today, Africa. Thank you so much for being on
1: the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks
0: for listening. Amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Alliance or leave a review of the show. So leaders like you will be more likely to find it to continue the conversation. You can head over to our time for teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries until next time, leaders continue to think big, act brave and be your best self.